Hi, Paul, and uh, thanks for coming to the Diplomacy Light podcast. Uh, and first of all, congratulations on, on your new book. The, the previous book, Army of None, was a real success and really established a high standard for, for quality and uh, a lot of information in it. Your most recent addition to, to the literature is called Four uh, Battlegrounds, Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. I read it and really enjoyed it. Um, by your own description, you describe that the AI can have a lot of constructive uses, but your book is, and I quote, uh, about the darker side of AI. Now, uh, there's, a, I think for a lot of people, darker side of AI right away, there's images of Skynet, of you know Terminator, of uh, these kinds of things. But you describe a different kind of, the, the, the frame, first of all, is the international system, the power within it. And to be honest, the, the, the two kind of books and frames that came to mind as I was reading them, one was Paul Kennedy, who you mentioned uh, in, in your book in the beginning, uh, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And he describes this, the importance of uh, the two wings of a bird, of, of the economy, as well as the military, that one cannot, a great power cannot focus on just one or the other uh, because in the end it will uh, lose because of uh, that, that kind of focus. Um, the other is Commanding Heights, um, in which Jürgen um, and Stanislav, it was, a, it was a book, they put together a documentary as well. They describe a battle of ideas of the 20th century. Now this seems to be um, kind of who gets the commanding heights. Your book is about who gets the commanding heights of the 21st century about power in the age of AI. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, well, thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. Um, and thank you for the very kind words. I'm very excited to get the book out there. Glad you enjoyed it and excited to share it with readers. Um, as you talked about, the, the book explores how artificial intelligence is changing love of power and what are some of the risks that come with that. And it are, it's not the risk that science fiction has warned us about, about AI turning on us, Look really exposed the risks about what people might do with artificial intelligence and what people are already doing, whether it's the techno-authoritarian surveillance state that China is building and exporting abroad, or the risks of military AI in ways that they might cause harm, or cause accidents, or cause wars to spiral out of control. One of the things that the book explores is, as we think about artificial intelligence like another industrial revolution, we saw the Industrial Revolution change global power in profound ways. And I'm glad you brought up Paul Kennedy's book because it was certainly an inspiration. And I went back and, and, and reread um, The Rise and Fall of the Great Powers to try to better understand how did the Industrial Revolution change not just warfare, but also initially economic productivity that then countries were able to translate into military as they took economic power or military potential power, and then translated that into military power by things like repurposing factories for then churning out uh, tanks and airplanes and ships. And one of the things that really struck me was that not only did we see countries rise and fall on the global stage during the Industrial Revolution by how rapidly they industrialized, as we saw, for example, Germany and Great Britain race ahead in terms of economic power, um, in the 19th century, and Russia fall behind because they were slow in industrializing. We also saw the key metrics of power change. So things like coal and steel production became key inputs of national power. Oil became a geostrategic resource that countries wanted to fight wars over. And so, you know, it's a commonplace to say things today like data is the new oil, and like 
hey, metaphors are, you know, things about that are helpful or that are maybe not helpful. But this question of what are the key inputs to national power, like oil and coal and steel production and manufacturing in an age of AI, is something that motivated me writing the book. And certainly the book is framed around this question. And I came to the conclusion that there are four key battlegrounds in the age of artificial intelligence. Whoever leads in those battlegrounds will you know, seize the commanding heights, if you will, um, on AI power. And they are data. That is certainly very important, whether it's you know, oil or not. Data is a critical input to artificial intelligence. Computing hardware, or sometimes called compute, the chips that are used to train machine learning algorithms on data. The human talent that's used behind all these AI systems. And the institutions that countries are using to adopt AI integrated within their societies or within their militaries. And whoever leads in these four areas of data, computing hardware, talent, and institutions will the lead in this century of artificial intelligence. Now, some may lead in one or two or three, and you know, especially in a multipolar world, it's going to be different. Alliances will, will matter. Let's start one by one, though. Um, you know, we got accustomed, first of all, to this hype of data is the new oil. You just mentioned right. it. Uh, I think we're at the tail end of that hype. Um, because the comparison, as you write in the book, is uh, sometimes okay, but sometimes not uh, a proper one. Data is, uh, and it is not a finite resource as oil, well, like uh, one of the several reasons. Tell us about data and, and how that will shape uh, power. Right. So um, data is really an essential input to machine learning systems because machine learning systems are trained on data. So something like ChatGPT, for example, the chatbot that is taking a world by storm is trained on massive amounts of text, and a big chunk of the text we have. And many of these machine learning systems use hundreds of gigabytes. So we're, you know, the analogy of oil is, is helpful, is to think about data as just like oil needs to be collected and refined and then becomes the fuel for internal combustion engines. Data needs to be pooled, collected, and refined, and then becomes the fuel, if you want to use that term, that powers machine learning um, and that they're trained on data. Now, one of the interesting aspects of the geopolitical competition from the data standpoint is there's a widespread perception that China has a major advantage in data for two key reasons. One, China has a very large population and therefore a large internet user base. So there's simply more people to draw data from and um, large data sets are more valuable. So there is advantages in diversity of data, type of data, but that is simply an advantage alone in state in training more capable machine learning. And then the second reason why China supposedly has a data advantage is because of the different data governance regime inside China. And certainly the Chinese Communist Party has the ability to collect data on its citizens, and it is doing so in ways that many other countries around the world uh, and democracies can't or are not whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or other nations. And the, you know, on the surface, it seems like China has an advantage. Roughly half of the world's one billion surveillance cameras are in China. They're increasingly using facial recognition, gait recognition to identify people based on how they walk. China is combining this with data on spending habits, geolocation data on their travel, on who they're connected to, 
to monitor and track Chinese citizens. And in some discrete areas, like facial recognition, for example, I think it's quite clear that actually Chinese companies will have a big leg up. In the United States, by comparison, um, there has been a grassroots movement against the use of facial recognition for law enforcement. And so we've seen the development of a actual series of regulations and bans on law enforcement using facial recognition at the state and local level. And the effect has been that the big tech companies, IBM, Amazon, Microsoft, have all gotten out of the game in the U.S. for facial recognition for law And so companies like SenseCon and China are likely to have a big leg up on maturing their facial recognition system because they have greater government spending. They have the ability to collect data by using the systems out in the real world. And um, they're going to get more feedback on the performance of their algorithms by deploying them out of the and getting a chance. Now, where the analogy breaks down about data in the wills, data is not a fungible resource. So more data on Chinese spaces isn't going to help you train a better AI fighter. Because the data can't be used in that way. In fact, the data often is used in so narrow fashion. The data on Chinese spaces may not help on non-Chinese we see with facial recognition algorithms, for example, that they don't necessarily translate well across um, from men, women, or across different races. And so this is a real limitation of data. And when you look closer, when you sort of look below the surface on the different data governance regimes in China, in the U.S., and in Europe, you'll see that within China, there's this sort of a bifurcation of data governance that is to say that the state has effectively no limitations on what it can do. Uh, the law in China exists to be a vehicle for the Chinese Communist Party's power. It's not there to constrain the government the way that it does exist in democratic nations. But there are restrictions on Chinese companies. And in fact, the Chinese Communist Party has been cracking down quite considerably on Chinese tech companies, wheeling them in as independent power bases, and there's been quite a bit of innovation in government regulations surrounding consumer data privacy in China. There have been a number of scandals about user privacy, and the government's been putting more regulations in place. So the type of advantages the government has don't necessarily translate over to private companies all the time. The other thing that's really important is that the what really matters from a tech company standpoint is actually not the national user base of the country that they're but the user base of that company. And U.S. tech companies have global reach. So platforms like Facebook and YouTube are not constrained by the size of the U.S. population. They have each over 2 billion users globally, which is much bigger than, for example, VChat's 1.2 billion users. And other than TikTok, Chinese companies have actually struggled to break out of China and succeed in the global market. Now, that may change, but at least for now, U.S. tech companies have a big advantage in terms of having larger and diversified user bases because they're actually not constrained by the size of the U.S. population. So, you know, at the end of the day, data is a resource that the U.S. and China and Europe all have access to. And what's going to matter more than simply you know, for sheer number of people within national population, is going to be what do companies and government do with data? How do they refine the data? How do they avoid it effectively? 
when I talk with people in the U.S. military about their efforts to integrate AI, one of the things that came up all the time was the barriers they were running into from getting access to it. They didn't have the ability to get the right permissions. They didn't have the ability to collect the data. It wasn't in the right format. They couldn't connect the computer network to transfer the data. And sometimes I'll hear, you know, they said it took them six or nine months to get access to the data. And then once they had access to it, two weeks to train the algorithm. And so the winner of the data contest is likely to be whoever's able to put in place institutions that are able to get access to this data, clean it up, refine it, and then use it in a useful fashion for various AI applications. Interesting that, you know, some of the things that as we're, as we're talking, they are changing in the sense, uh, just today I was checking what are the top, uh, apps, uh, on the iPhone, two of the three were Chinese. So, I mean, even this is now changing. So, but, um, let's, let's start to compute because you have a very nice uh, analogy there where you say that, um, if you know, China is the Saudi Arabia of data. Uh, and that if that has been overused, uh, Taiwan is certainly the, the, the Saudi Arabia, if, if we might say it in terms of compute, in terms of the processors, uh, TSMC, uh, is really the, uh, a huge company with a lot of, with a global potential on monopoly, really, uh, Dutch ASML, uh, in, in, in supplying extreme ultraviolet, uh, lithography tools that are really useful and, and necessary to create the hardware. So when we, when we turn to compute, this seems to be at the moment, uh, a real advantage that if we're comparing us and, and, and China or the West, uh, has, is that the case? Absolutely. And data is a relatively level playing field. Um, the U S and other allied nations, particularly Japan, the Netherlands, South Korea, Taiwan had a huge leg up on the hardware competition. And that's because hardware is concentrated through these key choke points in the geopolitical supply chain. And so while it's, it's just not true that China is the Saudi Arabia of data for all the reasons that I walked through, it isn't a stretch to say that Taiwan is the Saudi Arabia of over 90% of the world's most advanced semiconductors are made in Taiwan. And, um, you know, the sort of the geopolitical pressure surrounding Taiwan, the fact that miles off the coast of China and they have uh, made quite clear that their intention is to absorb Taiwan by force if necessary. That uh, puts Taiwan in a unique position geopolitically in terms of the role that it plays in this absolutely critical resource for machine learning and for the AI revolution. And so, um, but it's not just Taiwan, right? There are other countries, you mentioned uh, the Dutch firm ASML. ASML, of course, has a monopoly on extreme ultraviolet the equipment that's needed to make the most advanced. Uh, Japan also plays a really critical role, particularly in the chemicals that are used for advanced chip making. South Korea also a major producer of muting chips. And so, um, it, you know, it's really interesting because when you look at the geopolitical competition of hardware, there are some surprising countries that come to the fore in terms of having... Um, really outsized political aid. And we've already seen the competition under hardware is underway with the Biden administration's export controls on manufacturing equipment and AI chips to China that came out in October of 2022. Some recent news in the last weeks that Japan and the Netherlands are going to join those US export controls. But 
fuzzy publicly exactly where Japan and the Netherlands are going to come out on this. Um, I'll be really interested to see if more details come out exactly what their controls look like. Because, you know, how what exactly the controls include is going to have a huge effect by China's ability to indigenize semiconductor manufacturing. It's an area where China's really struggled over the last several decades. They've invested billions. Uh, they don't have a whole lot to show for it. Unlike in other areas where they've been able to climb up the value chain and move their capabilities significantly, things like 5G wireless networks, for example, with Huawei's role there um, before the U.S. used, again, chips as uh, a key point of leverage to harm Huawei's competitors in 5G. Uh, if these export controls stay in place, China's really going to be crippled in its ability to indigenize some of these uh, manufacturing capabilities. And right now, China's heavily vulnerable to this hardware gap. China imports over $400 billion annually shift. They are very keen, uh, keenly aware of this vulnerability. China's working very hard to try to wean themselves off of foreign And something that Xi Jinping has talked about, about these vulnerabilities that China has, the foreign technology, these dependencies, being a major vulnerability for the country. And we're seeing that play out with these new export controls. Um, the fact that Chinese dependency here is a point of leverage that other countries have in terms of controlling Chinese access to things like cutting edge AI technology. You, you use an interesting uh, metaphor in describing the US policy, Trump's uh, specifically uh, on Huawei when, when it came with on, on, on 5G. Uh, as a drunkard uh, starting a fight uh, in a bar, but doesn't really know how to finish it. And and it seems that, you know, there is, uh, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that for several reasons. I think that one of the reasons is exactly what you're describing right now in terms of do uh, the export controls work? I mean, at the end of the day, if the incentive, you know, it, you might have a short-term uh, gain, but in the long term, you might incentivize uh, higher innovation uh, exactly uh, on it. And, and then... Perhaps even a, a bigger, uh, I would say, uh, danger is that the U.S. has been the champion of interna open international trade of uh, no no boundaries, no controls of these kinds. And all of a sudden, we're seeing a lot of uh, export controls, a lot of boundaries going into the international trade system, which will affect the, the whole world, no? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And I think that the U.S., um... It's, it's a colorful metaphor, but I think it's not wrong. The U.S. stumbled its way into this global chip war without much more. And it started because the U.S. was concerned about Huawei's dominance, 5G wireless network, I think, valid reasons. And in an effort to try to kneecap Huawei's competitiveness globally and stop the integration of Chinese technology and control very critical telecommunications networks, including in key partner and allied countries, ultimately, the administration went after the chips that Huawei had access to. Using an export control tool called the Foreign Direct Product the U.S. was able to basically stop the export of chips that were designed in China, manufactured in Taiwan, and then destined to back for China. Um, and the U.S. was able to do this because the manufacturing inside Taiwan depends on U.S. technology. And so the U.S. was able to say, um, initially the U.S. said you can't use any U.S. technology in these chips that go to Huawei, and they didn't depend on U.S. technology. So the U.S. had, a, I think, a fairly weak hand to play here 
And ultimately what the U.S. ended up saying was, okay, but we can't use any U.S. technology to manufacture chips destined for Huawei. And it did it. It was really effective. But there is this problem of, you know, with any export controls, the more that you use them, the more that you incentivize various actors, countries and the private sector, to try to find ways around these export And that is some of my concern that I talked about in the book. I've written about it in other places like in foreign policy, um, uh, that the export controls on the chips themselves that the U.S. is putting into place might create some of these incentives. Um, that this demand that exists inside China for looting at chips is there. It's likely going to grow over time. And by restricting access to the chips themselves, the U.S. is basically creating a market incentive globally for a completely U.S. independent supply chain. And that, I see, is a real problem. And so what the Biden administration did in October was they, they basically went further beyond the restriction of Huawei, and there are now restrictions nationwide in China, anyone on advanced graphics processing GPUs, uh, the kind that are used in cutting-edge machine learning applications. And these export controls, the U.S. place, they are unilateral and extraterritorial, or what my colleague Emily Kilquist has called the, the double sin of export. And I think on the surface, you know, one of my concerns is that on the surface, I think in Washington, there's been just tremendous exuberance over these export controls. Oh, look what we did. We caught our chip to China. Um, I think there's a perception of Washington that the, the ability of U.S. companies to be in these key choke points in the supply chain gives Washington this kind of leverage over China. And look at how powerful. I think it's a sign of weakness that the U.S. controls are unilateral and extraterritorial. The rest of the territorial because the manufacturing doesn't happen in the U.S. anymore. And the fact that the unilateral is even more troubling is it means we haven't been successful in getting our allies out. And at the end of the day, the U.S. is not a uniform technology power. We're going to have to work with allies, including in hardware, these really critical countries, and the Netherlands, Taiwan, and South Korea, to get them on board. Or the U.S. just doesn't have the dominance in a semiconductor marketplace to go it alone. And if the U.S. has got to compete in this space, we're going to have to work closely with allies and convince them about U.S. concerns. The third battleground that you mentioned is talent. And in, in this sense, if we're speaking about much more hard power, uh, and, and even trade policy sometimes can be harder uh, than what Joseph Nye and others, you know, have termed the soft power. And this is where talent is do you track the brightest? Do you track the best to your to your diversity student? And here, if I may, you know, and come back coming back to this initial um, frame that I that I propose of, of commanding heights. You know, the twentieth century was a battle of ideas, and in that there was a battle of two main ideas. Um, here it was capitalism and communism, but really also a battle between uh, the role of government in uh, in the in the economy specifically in any country. It went through several stages, perhaps in the early 20th century, uh, less government, then mid 20th century, more government, then again, 70s onwards, 80s, uh, less government. It seemed like it won that this this kind of idea. But right now we're talking about, again, more government, right? Like Because there is another more government that is doing this and doing it more efficiently. So, you know, can you just, uh, tell us about the talent aspect, title of the Balagon, but also this part of attracting talent and attaining it? Absolutely. So if the first two battlegrounds, data and computing hardware, are about the technical inputs 
to building an AI system, the next two, talent and institutions, are about the human. And human talent is really critical for actually harnessing this technology. Um, out in the AI space, there is an incredible competition for top-tier AI talent. So AI researchers coming out of PhD programs at AG universities are getting like, you know, professional sports level salary, NFL level salaries. Um, and there's a fierce competition for global talent. And what's interesting is when you look at the global talent, similar to things like hardware, there's a lot of globalization and interconnection, but people can move. And that is one of the critical differences when we're looking at the, the competition over talent. So more of the top AI researchers in the world come from China than any other but they don't stay in China. They come to the United States. They come to the United States to study, and then they stay in the United States after graduation. So in surveys, the U.S. is the top destination for AI scientists from around the world. And when you look at the talent flows of China's research, so over half of China's top undergraduates studying AI come to the U.S. for their graduate work. And then of those Chinese-born researchers, during their PhD in the United States, 90% of them stay in the U.S. after graduating from their PhD because there's better personal freedoms here in the United States and also better op opportunities for entrepreneurship and founding a company and growing and getting access to capital. And so that's a major magnet for global talent. And one of the uh, you know really challenging things from a policy standpoint is right now, in fact, the U.S. government is tolerating itself in one of its biggest advantages that the U.S. has over China. And so we're creating all of these barriers to top AI scientists coming to the U.S. and staying in the U.S., whether it's things like caps on H-1B visas uh, or green cards. And that's a real challenge going forward. Uh, it's caught up in U.S. domestic policy over immigration and the southern border in the United States. Uh, but it's something that the U.S. government is going to have to figure out because the U.S. has an asymmetric advantage over China in this talent competition, but only if it actually uses some of that potential. In both talent and in institutions, um, these, these, the, the, the institutions that are there, again, depend on what's, what I would call it, the operating system, right? Like, it, you know, yeah. and the operating system at the moment is capitalism, the, 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 the global one. And it seems... Um, you know, the, the, um, battles of the 20th century are, 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 are behind, but perhaps that's just the recession away, a depression away in a, in a major economy, uh, where things change. And all of a sudden there is a country, a big power, uh, China specifically, that is socialist or communist. I don't know to what degree that's still, uh, present as an ideology inside. I think that there's a lot of capitalist, uh, movements, uh, within it, but the idea is there. Uh, is there a danger that all of a sudden this battle of ideas resurfaces of capitalism against communism? Yeah, well, I'm certainly not sure that it's... it's. There's this question of how would you characterize the Chinese political economy, right? Um, and and what, what terms you'd want to use. But I certainly think that there is a contest that's underway globally for thinking about models of governance, uh, both from an economic growth standpoint and political and social governance. And a lot of countries globally are looking at China as a model. And China has been able to thread the needle on what folks call the dictator's dilemma. This idea that prior to China, you know, you could look at countries 
uh, political situation and how liberal they were from a political standpoint and economic growth and say that at certain point countries basically have one of two paths they can go. Either they can begin to liberalize the economy and we'll see down the road that the free flow of information and people in things like the market also leads to greater political freedoms and uh, you know political resolution follows economic liberalization. That was certainly the hope with the United States in the 90s in terms of greater engagement with China that the vapor Or for many countries, the path was, okay, you can close yourself off, you can maintain tech control, but then you end up down the path of something like this. And China's been able to, to manage those and have really unprecedented economic growth over the last several years. History has done... Uh, it has lifted millions out of poverty, dramatically improved the standard of living of the Chinese while maintaining ironclad control um, in terms of the political control the Chinese Communist Party has over the Chinese people. And we haven't seen that. There may be pressures inside China, but the Chinese Communist Party has been able to manage those pressures through building up a really intensive apparatus of uh, already today censorship. Uh, both within the Chinese information ecosystem and then walling that off from outside information and propaganda, but increasingly more AI-enabled forms of oppression. And that's one of the things the book talks about that's really deeply troubling, is this new Chinese-style model of techno-authoritarianism that we're seeing pioneered internally within China. Certainly an extreme version in Xinjiang, where there's really intense control in terms of China's repression over the Uyghurs there, but also uh, nationwide across China with things like surveillance cameras, but also China's social credit system, monitoring Chinese behavior. And we're seeing the export of that global over 80 countries purchasing and getting access to Chinese surveillance technology. And even more troubling, I would argue, Chinese uh, style norms and laws that are being exported. And so the book talks about over 30 countries that have gotten briefings and training by China on things like cybersecurity law and information environment as China is looking to export its, its social software that underpins this kind of model of AI-enabled repression. It's deeply troubling globally, and I think it's really important that democracies work together to push back against this use of artificial intelligence. You you mentioned one um, aspect, one if not a ballot battleground, certainly a point of tension of standards. And usually yeah. when one thinks of standards, one thinks of, well, they're, they're there to um, reduce complexity, to standardize, to find a way that solves problems in a, in a manner that all, all can agree. But they're actually a, a way of, uh, an aspect of geopolitical uh, tensions as well, isn't it? And all of a sudden, that is becoming an issue in bodies like the International Stabilization Organization, International Telecommunications Union, and, and, and others. Is it possible to turn that, perhaps, into uh, a platform for understanding, a platform for communication, a platform for really developing standards that are, for AI specifically, that can be useful instead of points of tension? Well, I think we have to. I think we have to find ways to uh, preserve the integrity of those standard-setting bodies, and also ensure that the technical standards that are being set are ones that undermine democratic And so standards are, you know, for, for the, the walking out yeah, policy folks that, fo that follow this issue, 
um, they're probably well aware of the really importance of technical standards in this global competition over AI governance. But it's maybe not one that grabs a lot of news headlines or necessarily gets a lot of attention. But it's really important because there are all these technocratic standard-setting bodies. And we've seen China become much more active in them, which itself would be a good thing if the Chinese Communist Party was engaging, if the Chinese government were engaging in a way that wasn't looking to distort these standards. And we're seeing that happen in two key ways. So one of these is um, the Chinese government putting their thumb on their scales to simply benefit Chinese companies for global competitiveness. And we've certainly seen that in uh, standards competitions over 5G wireless networks, where the government gets all of the Chinese companies together, gets everyone on the same page, brings more half to that conversation. And that's a, just a yet another example where we see China engaging in economic competition in a way where there's this blend of economic competitiveness and national security um, that's certainly not consistent with the rules of free and fair competition and market access. And very much in line with we see China do it at things like intellectual property and uh, espionage. But the other one is that these technical standards are not apolitical. And I think a really essential insight when we're looking at governance of AI, data, surveillance technology, or any of these other things, social media platforms, is that uh, any kind of technology, once it's instantiated into an artifact, there is some element of political values that are inherent in that artifact which created. Something like social media is an example of this. Of, you have something like Twitter, where it enables anyone to basically create an account very easily, go on the platform, broadcast their message. There's an inherent, implicit value behind that, that um, every, giving everyone a megaphone is a good thing. We want to democratize the ability to access information and then to share their And of course, there are you know, pluses and minuses with that. It turns out that it's not quite as simple as maybe people might have hoped a decade ago. Uh, when there was a you know a big excitement about this democratization of information, um, but that's true in, in any of these things. And so it's things like you know um, the way that facial recognition standards are instantiated, uh, doing those technical standards in some setting. Uh, for example, this is come up. You know, include things like people's race and ethnicity. Well, that can be then used for discrimination, which in fact we see China doing within. China internally building things like Uyghur detection systems to try to identify someone's ethnicity, whether or not they're a Uyghur, based on facial recognition. Um, and so that's some of the areas where you know, there are some really troubling applications of these technologies and more ensure that we maintain the integrity of these technical standard setting bodies and ensure they're not being used in a way that furthers repression and undermines human you quote Maya Wong of Human Rights Watch in saying something that may be in the minds of many. This is what she says, quote, The world is essentially being put forward to fairly bad proposals. She, she speaks of governance, but this could be said for, for much wider global uh, governance aspects. One is the U.S. surveillance capitalism model, driven by big companies and essentially is about us all being herded into particular directions to spend money. The other is the Chinese government model of mass surveillance. Neither of those are preferable. Must it be one or the other? Is there something in between? Well, I think we have to find an alternative model. Uh, 
And that is one of the key themes in the book is what is the alternative model to this Chinese style um, AI enabled repression assuming beginning to proliferate globally. And as my wife points out, excuse me, you've, I, I thought it was a great and very uh, valuable insight. Right now, there isn't a good competing model that democracies are bringing for this is a way to use this technology, whether it's social media, uh, data collection, AI, surveillance tech, that preserves democratic values and individuals. And the competing model right now is surveillance capitalism, which basically has all sorts of problems. And of course, the U.S. has a very laissez-faire approach to tech governance, uh, whereas Europe has been leading quite a bit into technology governance, GDPR and various types of AI governance, uh, the U.S. has very slow to respond. Now, I do think that in the long run, open societies had a tremendous advantage here, specifically because the governance process within open societies is one that brings together a whole variety of different groups. So you do see in the U.S. in debates over things like facial recognition, this complex interplay of different actors, this messy give and take between state, local, and federal authorities, private tech companies, members of civil society, grassroots movements of concerned citizens, debating how are we going to use this. It's just that this process takes more time. And sometimes that can be frustrating. We want an answer right now. Within China, when the Chinese Communist Party says, this is how we're going to govern the technology, man, they just do it, right? They dictate by fiat. And we've actually seen them root forward quite a bit with different forms of governance, for example, on things like synthetic media online and uh, deep fakes of various types of fashion, where uh, it's much more of the, the Wild West here in the United States on this thing. Um, but that, that process of getting stakeholders together, having a diverse array of interests is really essential to getting the best outcome in the long run. But I do think there's an urgency within democratic societies for us to accelerate that process of coming to what are the conclusions, how are we going to regulate this technology, how are we going to govern it, so that we can compete in this global context of our technology. There's one point in the, in the book where I laughed out, out loud, really. It was this example of the use of um, where there was an, an AI system is put to uh, recognize eight marines and see as they're approaching them. And they use different techniques to try to approach the, the system and not be noticed, you know. One is they, they go into a cardboard and they move in the cardboard. The other is uh, a marine does, I don't know, somersaults for 300 meters or something like that. The third dresses up as a, as a fir tree. And this really brings up this, I mean, you know, we keep on thinking of all the possibilities of, of, of combining AI plus weapons. And usually they're offensive weapons, sometimes offensive, yeah. but it's... But, you know, th there's all these, these aspects of brittleness, right, that really create a lot of dangers uh, about it. I mean, the hype is there, but what about the, these not so, uh, you know, superhuman abilities of, of, of AI and, and their use of, with weapons? Yeah, I, I love that anecdote that came from a, a DARPA project from, um, you know, the, the U.S. military's Department of Mad Scientists, uh, sometimes called in, in DARPA, doing cutting-edge research on a whole variety of different technologies. And it does illustrate this brutalness of AI system that it could be so easily defeated by clever people doing very simple things that would never work against the human. Right? So a human century would see this hardware box scooting up and be like, first one in a box doesn't require a lot of, like, you know, puzzling it out, but totally defeated the AI because it wasn't trained to do that.
And we see this come up time and again, AI systems. Their, their world is limited by their training. And so if they counter something that's not captured in the training data, they can fail off of quite dramatic. And that's a big limitation in a whole variety of applications, but it's a really big problem for military AI systems where they're going to be operating in an environment that you can't control and in an inherently adversarial context where other people are trying to manipulate and defeat these AI systems. And I think it's a real point of caution for militaries as they're thinking about adopting these systems talk a lot about legal and ethical concerns about weapons, for example, and increasingly about military AI. It was absolutely important. Uh, those are great conversations you need to be having. Those are important concerns. But they're also practical ones. Of, is this going to work? Is it going to be manipulated by the enemy? And how do we do sufficient testing up front to mitigate some of these concerns, to make sure the AI systems are more reliable, they're more robust? And then how do we put in safeguards but when the inevitable thing happens, we couldn't put it. Because knowing that, knowing that example, you could go back and say, okay, we're going to train AI on cargo boxes moving around and let it know, like, is your cargo box moving? That's a problem. Or people somersaulting, or crawling, or doing cartwheels, or walking on our hands, or people dressed up like trees. And then one example, the tree's moving. That's a problem. You need to give it a closer look. These are not supposed to move. But that's only, that's only a few examples. Right? So the space of creative things that humans can do is very vast. It's bigger than we're going to be able to come up with, you know, a list sketching it out on a whiteboard. It's bigger than what militaries are going to be able to do with testing, leave it in simulation. And so keeping humans involved once these systems are deployed is really essential. And I think to me, that's one of the big takeaways is will there fall with this technology? There are a lot of risks. We could see this already with things like AI check. You know, Google puts out this chat line. Racing to compete with Microsoft, following up by ChatGPT, and it makes a mistake, Google loses $100 billion in company value as a result. That's just a chat. Certainly the consequences of a military AI system much more severe, and that's something that we want to get ahead of and making sure that we're being safe as we use it. We're at the end, um, so perhaps just one more, one more question, and it's really the one that... Uh, got me the most, I think, in the book. It's your discussion of, can AI change the nature of war? I mean, you've yeah. talked about the characteristics of war changing, and that's something, you know, war has been war. Technologies have come in, nuclear has changed, the, you know, gunpowder has changed it, but it's been war. Even right now, today is the 24th of February, exactly a year ago, uh, a major war started in European soil, but it's still a war, right? Like, it's in the way that we've understood wars for thousands of years, you know, like certainly hundreds, certainly in the, in the modern system. Now, the possibility is, as you say, you know, like how do you, how would one characterize a, a, a swarm gone awry and, and killing, uh, you know, a big population? Is this just an industrial, as you say, uh, mishap? Is it like, how exactly do, do we characterize it? And I, and I do want to steer that toward a, a good possibility because I think that there is such a possibility. One possibility is war is transformed in a bad way. God forbid. But I think that there is this possibility of, of going into a common ground where there is competition. There's, you know, there is national security considerations. But, you know, looking at specifically at China, China had, you know, gunpowder, the compass, uh, printing press, hundreds, sometimes, sometimes 
many centuries uh, before the West. And they, they used it differently. They used the technology differently. Can we come to such a point where the world kind of agrees, listen, we have some really, really powerful technologies at the moment. Let's kind of agree to, to disagree on some things. We will compete economically. But outside of that, let's look at how AI can be used for strategic stability, for instance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so <laughs> for those who are, uh, you know, sort of like military and defense research, I mean, basically, I, ca- I commit heresy to the book by, by raising this idea that AI change the nature of war itself. And that's, that's like a really loaded topic among military and defense scholars. And that the logic basically is that way that people talk about it is that the character of the work, the way that militaries fight, is constantly changing. We see that in the war in Ukraine, that the tactics that are being used are already evolving month to month, week to week. But the nature of what war is, the underlying aspects of, of you know, a violent political struggle among competing groups, chaos and uncertainty and friction, those aspects are timeless and unchanged. And so what I, you know, I say that's kind of article is, well, is that always going to be the case going forward? Is there something that AI could do to change the nature of words? And so we could see a future more, not in the near term, I don't think this is a near term thing, but maybe decades down the road, where there is something that is like war, but it is different in a very and fundamental way that has not happened. And I don't think that's likely to happen with the introduction of Tactical AI systems, even AI at the operational level. So I don't think swarms change the nature of war, just like aircraft didn't change the nature of war. It just changed the way that militaries carried out. But one can envision a far future where AI is integrated into all aspects of military operation. And AI has made a profound change in war itself and the psychology of war by removing aspects of the human element of war that make warfare what it is. So Chinese scholars have hypothesized about a singularity on the battlefield, a point in time where the pace of action on the battlefield eclipses humans' ability to understand, and humans have to effectively turn over the keys to machine in order to stay competitive. And we've seen in other competitive environments, like in gaming, for example, StarCraft, and Dota, that when humans play against these AI systems, not only are they that they play differently than different tactics, but also different psychology. So one of the things that human players have remarked is how AI systems constantly pressure them. Not only do they have more precision, more coordination in their actions, things you would expect, but they engage in what you might think of as superhuman levels of aggressive. Because humans have to take a break, they have to shift their attention to someone else, AI doesn't have to do that. We see that in real-world wars, there's lows, action, combat, because humans need to rest. They need to turn their attention somewhere else. And what happens when AI is so deeply integrated or changes the psychology of war itself? Because now we have not human combatants using AI, which we'll see in the near term, but over time, AI being effectively a combatant itself, a non-human entity. Uh, it's very speculative, uh, but, but I think there's things that we want to think about because there are, needless to say, profound risks that would come with some of those transitions. And I'm glad you pointed out, I think it's a positive note to end on, that what matters most is not the technology itself, but how do we use this technology? And we have choices. We saw that when nuclear weapons were invented, states ultimately came to a series of international agreements 
and norms and structures to try to manage the risks of nuclear weapons. A little more dangerous than we would like, but it's certainly better than the worst fears that people had predicted in the 1950s and 60s about nuclear proliferation. And how can we anticipate those challenges and put in those safeguards today so that we can manage the future that lays ahead of us as we see AI integrated more and more into our society? Paul, thank you. Let's all work toward perhaps quieting the voices in all countries uh, that are uh, drumming uh, drums of war and really uh, try to find drums of peace. The very fact that I'm mentioning this really in the in the same breath as this book, I don't know if you can <laughs> see it, Rise and Fall, It's and, and I'm, I'm mentioning your book in the same breath, I think it gives a lot of compliments to your work. Uh, it's really a, a great book and congratulations for it. Well, and thank you for coming for the Diplomacy Light podcast. Well, thank you so much. This is very kind, and I'm glad you enjoyed it, and thank you for having me on this on the podcast. Thanks, Paul. Welcome, Ed.